sloppy spoilers with your host, DT2. What's up, y'all? It's DT2 Comics Chat here for another episode of Sloppy Spoilers. On this broadcast, we're going to be talking about uh, the first of our series of talks about the Alien franchise. And it's quite fortuitous that we picked this time to do it uh, because of a certain tweet that hit Twitter this week. We'll talk about that as we go. But let me bring in my co-host. Let's say welcome to David Nemesis Howard. What's up, Dave? Hey, what's going on, everybody? I cannot wait to talk about this movie. One of my favorite franchises of all time, barring a few entries. And uh, yeah, what's been going on online? Definitely looking forward to talking about that as well. So. And let's welcome Steve Shade Wing Sellers. What's up, Steve? Oh, doing all right. Uh, in space, uh, nobody can hear a bad take suck. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to dissecting this one uh, for sure. Um, I'm actually one of those people who got into Alien a little late, uh, but I think it'll be an interesting discussion nonetheless. All right, folks, we're going to jump right on in. So this week on Twitter, let me give you her name because I want to get it right. <clears throat> this week on Twitter, uh, L Hunt. E-L-L-E underscore Hunt said her argument was in response to Uther uh, Lives was that my argument horror cannot be set in space. She actually said that a horror movie couldn't be set in space. And we were like, have you not seen Alien? Have you not seen Event Horizon? And then just everybody's been responding to that. So like I said, this is like a perfect time for us to dive into this. So what we're going to start with is <clears throat> I'm going to throw mine out there that I'm going to throw to my co-host. We're going to talk about <clears throat> how we define horror movies, what we think those parameters are. So I'll start with mine, then I'll throw it over to them. For me, a horror film, number one, has a specific monster or species of monsters, one. Number two, there's some type of chase or, or uh, element that has to do with running from or getting away or trying to put space between the protagonist slash the red shirts and said monster. Number three, <clears throat> the deaths are not casual. They're always gory, suspenseful, and there's a lot of jump scares. And number four, normally in a horror film, there's a body count at the end. There's a who survived, which is what concludes that chapter and basically sets up the next one. So, Pretty simple criteria for me in terms of what qualifies for a horror film. And if you notice, none of that has to do with setting. None of that has to do with the actual background of the film. But those four criteria for me, specific monster, some type of chase element, uh, gory, suspenseful, jump scare deaths, and some type of tally at the end for who survives. As far as I'm concerned, it's a horror film. So let me hear what you guys think. Go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, I was trying to think about this as well because I was kind of anticipating some question like this. <clears throat> and I, for a little while, I had to think about what is how would I differentiate between suspense and horror because they're really closely linked. And for me, I think it really comes down to one thing in particular, which is there's always an antagonist 
most of the time. It can sometimes it can be the protagonist and the antagonist is fine, but one of your two main actors, their whole purpose is to create fear in some way, specifically to create fear. It could be a and there begin a lot of different things. There could be like the, the gory murders and everything else around it. But even a movie like, say for instance, uh, Fallen. Yeah, there's some gory deaths in there, but you don't see a lot of gory death uh, action. You just see the aftermath murders. But that is definitely a horror movie because the antagonist is specifically, it's the kind of character specifically designed to create fear. It's a demon, you know, for those sloppy spoilers, for those who haven't seen The Fallen, Denzel Washington, you know, finish this up, go get The Fallen and watch it because it's great, you know. But, you know, that is a horror movie that doesn't rely on, you know, gore necessarily, but it definitely relies on fear. So that's the main component for me is is it's all about fear versus a suspense can build up suspense, you know, um, anxiety in a lot of different ways. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with fear per se. So. Okay. Horror is when you shock the audience. Suspense is when you shock the characters. Okay. So <clears throat> we know something's coming, but it's so ugly. Uh, well, we know something is coming and they don't. That's suspense. So we see it behind the door and they don't. That's the suspense. When something jumped out at you and we didn't see that coming, that's horror. Now that's a little too broad. I know that's very broad, but just to give it kind of some succinct definitions. Uh, go ahead, Steve, what do you think? Yeah, um, I'm kind of along with uh, both of you on this, obviously. Um, one component I think needs to be brought up is the idea of the unknown. Um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, who I think uh, uh, set the tone for a lot of horror, um, you know, basically wrote an entire article about uh, what makes horror work. And it, he basically starts off with the idea is that um, horror really comes from the fear of the unknown. How are you going to get more unknown than outer space? You know, it is an unexplored territory, you know, and anything could be out there, things that can kill you. The environment itself can kill you. So, you know, there's definitely a fear from that. But in addition to that, um, the monster itself, uh, typically in these movies, you know, represents some kind of a primal fear. Uh, so, you know, even if it's something like a Jason or a Freddy or something like that, you know, with Freddy, it's the idea that, you know, dreams and nightmares can kill you. Uh, with the alien, it is the fear of violation. You know, the, the fear that this thing is going to come with you, you know, violate you in a personal deep level. Um, and that, that, that is a primal horror fear. And, and beyond that, you know, you have the usual tropes. Uh, you have the monster hunting people down one by one until you have the final girl that, you know, defeats the monster or succumbs to it, you know, and that's Ripley. You know, the, Alien ticks every single box to be a horror. And I don't understand how somebody could die on a hill uh, of basically Alien is not a horror film. It is a horror film. It's just set in an unusual um, location, but it is still functions as a horror. And in fact, the setting itself creates a horror, you know, because you're trapped in space, you know, somewhere where you can't get away from this thing. So, yeah, I, I just, it, this makes no sense to me at all. Don't get this take at all. <clears throat> now, I believe it was Dan O'Bannon. You can see this on the extras on any of the making ofs. He talked about the ideas he used, and he used several ideas that tap into what you're saying about uh, primal fear and responses. The first one he used was rape because yeah. he said people always get up in arms about sex, which is true, especially Western audiences. And he said the idea of something penetrating you against your will 
yeah. is, uh, you know, a deep fear we all have. So the second thing he used was suffocation. So the idea of something cutting off your air, how somehow you're still alive, but you can't breathe, but you can, uh, but you're no longer in control of drawing your own breath. Then he said he used the idea of birth, because if you've ever seen a baby being born, it's a harrowing experience for the mom. So he said he combined all of these things, and that's why it's so viscerally successful as a film, because the type of experiences are real experiences. They're 3D. They're things we can relate to. They're not abstract experiences like um, color spectrums or all the other things that we deal with in geek world. This is a real visceral kind of thing. And so that lends uh, so much of the punch uh, to all of the movie scenes and the ideas. And that is something that you feel and experience and understand on a subconscious vis visceral level. It doesn't have to explain for example, it doesn't really explain in full detail everything that's happening. It shows, it doesn't tell uh, better than most films. So transi transitioning from that, let's talk about, let's talk about what we talked about uh, before we went on here. Let's talk about our first reactions to seeing the film because we're gonna get into some of the minutia. Well, let's just talk about the first time you saw it, what was your response? Uh, for me, the first time I saw it, uh, my experience was the same as a lot of people. I saw aliens first. And so once I figured out I could handle aliens, because I was pretty young, uh, then I said, okay, I need to check out Alien to see where all this comes from. And the first time I actually saw Alien, it was mind-blowing. I'd never seen anything quite like that. And it was a, a screaming at the screen experience. Because since I'd seen Aliens, I knew what was going to happen. And I knew what was going on. And I was like, once again, the one crew member that knows what they're talking about is the one you ignore. Why don't you freeze him? That's what Parker said. How come they don't just freeze him? Why don't y'all freeze him? And they were like, la, 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 we don't hear you. Then they all end up dying. And I'm young with Parker. I'm like, you don't need to listen. But anyway, and um, I also thought the angles uh, and I also thought the way they framed everything and the quick cuts were brilliant. And it gave you just enough to understand what was happening, but never so much that it was an overload, which is why you can watch the film over and over and over again. Um, my thing with horror has always been horror only works if the characters are stupid. So what I, like, <laughs> what I like in films is when they write smart characters, where you figured out what to do, and you just run into a situation where you're either in over your head, or maybe you run out of a resource, or something happens that you didn't anticipate. Because most of the time, they write lazy humans, in order, because it doesn't work if the characters aren't stupid. But in a situation like this, uh, they, still did, they still did some really stupid stuff, but what really made Alien work, and we'll talk about this some more later when we get to cinematography and production values, was the sense of claustrophobia. That's what made this movie work. They, they, they got you in that cramped face and it made you feel like there wasn't really anywhere to go, which all of a sudden limits your options because even if you're thinking clearly in a stressed state, your options are very, very limited when you're surrounded by the vacuum of space and you're in a cramped space to begin with. So that's what helped me forgive some of the 
the dumber moves, which we'll talk about. So tell me, you guys, uh, what you thought first time you saw this film, Start With Steve. Yeah, um, I first saw it like a few years ago, so my memories are probably going to be a little bit fresher. Um, I, I came in, um, I don't remember exactly why I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to finally watch. Oh, right, because uh, Prometheus had uh, was had come out like right around that time. Uh, so I wanted to see the Alien movies first. That was what it was. Um, so yeah, I went and watched it first, and, and um, I, I, I knew that Ridley Scott had done some really amazing stuff with it, and, and what I'd heard was pretty good, and, and you know, obviously, you know, I love Sigourney Weaver, all those things. Uh, but when I went and saw it for the first time, I really was blown by by how good it was. Um, I love how well they set everything up. Um, I thought that, you know, the visuals actually, I, on a visual level, this is my favorite Alien film, more than so than Aliens, uh, with all respect to Cameron. Um, and a lot of it is because so much of it was practical effects, really well done practical effects. Um, the locations were well built. They looked lived in. It looked like a place where, you know, uh, a bunch of truckers from space would live, <laughs> you know, going through the galaxy and all of that, doing, doing the work that they do. It looked like someplace where even, in, um, where even now, like maybe in a few hundred years, you know, maybe we could have a setup like that. I mean, minus the computers and such. Uh, so all of that was really good. Um, the the alien itself was a really well done monster. They knew when to bring it in and when not to bring it in. You know, they they all all of these things. And I love that that Ripley is actually a fairly smart character. One of the things I hate about horror movies is how these characters are stupid, like you said, DT. And uh, it's a rare movie where the protagonist is smart. Uh, Nancy Thompson from uh, Nightmare is another one. Uh, but but Ripley actually does some smart stuff in this. You know, she's the one keeping everybody from um, contaminating the ship. And usually it's because somebody else is messing with her that things go wrong or not listening to her that things go wrong. Um, you know, in addition to Parker as well. But uh, I would say Ripley is, is one of the more sensible protagonists and you like her. And moreover, there's a character arc and you see how she grows over time. Um, yeah, so this, this, I mean, it's a classic. I mean, easily, um, you know, if it's not the best Alien movie, it's definitely up there with Aliens for it. I mean, really, really great movie. They use one of my favorite tropes, and one of my favorite tropes is uh, The Devil in Your Midst, because there were two. Yep. The movie makes you think there's one, but there's two. So we'll get yep. to that in a minute. Go ahead, Nemesis, first impressions. Yeah, this movie... Um, I'm like you guys. I saw Aliens first uh, pretty much because of my age. You know, when Alien came out, I was too young to see to see that movie at the time. So I saw Aliens first and Aliens grabbed a hold of me. You know, eventually I hope we talk about that movie because already I knew I wanted to be in the military. Just the nature of that movie, you know, and everything about it. I, I absolutely loved it. But when I eventually could get a hand on Alien, my hands on a copy of Alien, I had to see it because I wanted to see what led up to Aliens. And so seeing this movie, the thing I really took out of it, uh, especially for the time, was that uh, at this time, the two big space franchises, space movies that I had seen were uh, Star Wars, uh, which was uh, fantasy in space. Uh, the technology had a certain look, but it really didn't. You didn't concentrate on the technology. The only technology you really wanted to know about, especially in the first Star Wars, were the lightsabers and the fact that Death Star could blow up a planet. Other than that, you didn't really care. You just were there to enjoy it and have fun. The other one was Star Trek. You could, could never could confuse the techno technology and the surroundings of Star Trek, which was clean 
and modern. I mean, even in the original series, it looked, uh, you know, pristine to Alien. And then I saw the Alien movie, and for the first time, and maybe this is part of sucking you into that horror and making it just believable enough that it's it gets that much scarier because this looked like something that was, if not near future, possible future, you know, mm -hmm. very possible future. And it, it definitely had that feel. And from the beginning of the alien movie, when uh, they go in and the ship is quiet and silent because they're all in. And then all of a sudden the, the, the tech, you know, the machines start to come to life. The computer starts to come to life and you hear the printout. Those sounds are so iconic and I associate them with space to this day, you know, to this day. And this is decades later because it just felt right. And it, and, and it had nothing common because we weren't that far removed from Apollo, the Apollo missions in NASA. And we were right in the middle of the space shuttle missions. It felt like something that was built on that technology and just continued on, you know, so if, it definitely had that feel. And so I know I've spoken a lot about the technology and not the horror aspect, but that's the part that really sucked me into the whole uh, setting and made it that much more. It made me put my plausible, you know, my deniability. It may be, uh, I forget what that's called, but when you set, set everything aside and you are invested in the setting and you believe it, that really sucked me in. And that's what I, I took from this film right off the beginning. And then there's so many other elements that are just great about it, but that's the part that I, I really love every time I watch this movie, and I've watched it multiple times. So, All right, and that's a good segue into production <laughs> values. Let's talk about those. Um, if you've seen, again, any of the extras, you understood that they took old-fashioned two TVs and flipped them around and used their backs for the stuff in the wall. They used parts from real airplanes. So everything that you see on the screen is actually something you've seen in life in a different context. Your brain subconsciously knows that. So even if it's in a, a different configuration or shape that you're not used to, you know that it's a, a tube or a valve or something you can relate to. And it added to that gritty feel, but it was the camera angle that kept everything tight and claustrophobic. So that you know continually we're not dealing with a lot of space. So um, another thing you mentioned was about, there was a stark contrast between the sleek aerodynamic cut through the air style designs of Star Trek and Star Wars and the Nostromo. Because it basically looked like four nuclear cores vertically glued together with some Legos floating through space at a half a mile an hour. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely different kind of thing. There wasn't, any, wasn't anything uh, sleek or, or fast or there wasn't, uh, you didn't feel like there was necessarily power in the ship. It was just there to kind of keep them alive. And then, uh, of course, everything about the alien itself going down to how they used real cow guts when the egg opens and that lace is actual cow guts and how they used uh, real chicken skin, I believe. And then they used uh, oysters and squid parts when the uh, face hugger was cut open and they were examining it. So, I mean... You can't get any better than real guts in life when you're trying to describe monster guts, you know. So there are all kinds of tricks like that that they did. So let me throw on my writer's hat for a minute and say, 
This is what you want to think about when you're writing. This is called world congruence. And what that means is that once you immerse your audience in a world, everything they read and hear and see reinforces what you're trying to say. Nothing jumps out as out of place based on the story world as you've established it. That's what makes an experience powerful when you set a tone and you maintain the tone. Okay, so let me hear you guys' thoughts on production values. Nemesis, you go ahead. Yeah, I think that I haven't watched a lot of the director's information on it, but this is just me looking at the film. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like a super expensive film to produce, but it the way that he did it, the way Ridley Scott presented it, you know, what you just said about uh, using known objects and everything, once again, it had that realer than real feel. You know, uh, there's a point in the movie, you know, for all of you sloppy spoilers is coming up, when the Nostromo, this big old huge ship that's really designed to just be a tug in space, it's a tugboat. They decide to go and land and just the very act of landing and they do a successful landing on the ship causes the ship to break because this thing, even though it can land, it's not designed to land, you know, and and it looks like it's barely being held together. And it makes the character of Parker and I can never remember his name. Dad, what's oh, his name? Oh, uh, no, uh, Brett. That's Brett. Yeah, it makes Parker and Brett. It immediately makes them sympathetic characters in your eyes because these dudes are the two real working dudes on the ship mm -hmm. and they're getting screwed over. I mean, they really are. I mean, they're just, they're overworked, underpaid, and they want their money. And now they're doing this shit, you know, excuse my language, you know, and then an alien's going to be on the, and you're just like, man, what do these guys have to do? You know, the other ones, you know, we, well, we could talk about them later, but those two definitely, you're like, oh, man. And you look at the ship that these two are tasked with bringing together, and it's funny because our protagonist at first is not a sympathetic character. You know, the first time we meet Ripley and she's going down there to chew some ass of Parker and, and uh, Brett, we're like, come on, man, get off these guys' butt, you know? So it's definitely interesting, and, and I very much like that. But back to the production value, I mean, you know, I would say that even with the alien, um, the alien is not as refined as aliens, the alien suits in other uh, movies. You know, probably the pinnacle of the alien suit is uh, Predator versus Alien, the first one. You know, that's probably where you had the, the pinnacle of the alien suit. But they knew their limitations. And so he shot it in such a way that by knowing that, you know, if he had shot it in full light, it would look terrible. It made it that much scarier. So I think that's the the mark of a very smart director is that he knew what he could and could not do and he accentuated the positives and tried to minimize the negatives and that is i think true for all of the production value through this whole movie and that's what makes it work the budget was actually 11 million dollars can you believe that yeah 11 million wow go ahead steve production values yeah, I mean, they're off the charts. I mean, like I said, I really do think this is the best-looking movie, um, at least of the films that I've seen. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I have to say, a lot of it is that they did a good job making it lived in, and they just use simple things that, are, that uh, you can find anywhere. Uh, one of the things I really like is that there's a, a coffee machine like on in there. Like, they're using actual coffee machines that, you, that we would use today. They um, had that right little... There. 
that yeah. little bird, that little bird thing. Remember those from yeah. the seventies? Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 just little things like that that made it feel real. And yeah, you know, being able to use, uh, you know, uh, remains of you know basically animals and things like that, you know, to to make all those practical effects because you know you have to get all the blood and guts from somewhere, and now you can't CGI it. You know, back then they had to find some other way to do it. So yeah, you you know you you mix these chemical concoctions that you pass this blood or acid. You know, and it worked, and they did a really good job with that. Uh, the costume designs are amazing. Uh, and I will say, I, I have to give credit to the actor who played the alien. Uh, from what I gather, this was a guy that the production uh, designer found in a bar. And uh, the, he's a Nigerian actor, and he only appeared in this movie. Um, a, a guy named uh, Bajali Badejo, or Badejo, I believe his name was. Uh, outstanding guy, really, really great in the role. Um, it, you know, a lot of it is his movements and whatnot. Uh, but, but it also helped that you had all of that. And then on top of that, you had H.R. Giger designing all of, all of the sets and, and all of these things. And not only did the places look lived in, but even that one uh, scene aboard uh, the, uh, the spake jockey ship. Um, it just looks completely, the, or as they call it, the big, uh, the big croissant, <laughs> which is what they called it, the big croissant. Uh, it, it looks like a, a, a absolutely alien ship, and it and, a, and it visually fits all of the themes that we're talking about. You know, the the you know all of the uh, basically uh, double entendres, shall we say, the visual ones. They're all in there, and it's because uh, they got this out out of the way. You know, uh, Swedish artists to make it look good. And, and to come up with this stuff, and then they just built it. it you know, it, I, I don't think that there's another movie like this, really, not even in its own genre. That's right. Uh, uh, Giger called it biomechanical art. Yeah. And it was a combination of just a bunch of really weird <laughs> kind of perverse things kind of all juxtaposed together and uh, very horrific, very sensual, very alien uh with, with with different types of angles it was just really uh you know the stuff i guess he saw in his head but it worked for the film now in terms of the actor some stuff says he was 16 some stuff says he was 72 so uh, super tall you know somewhere between 16 and 72. Uh, six four how what you say i heard six four okay so uh but now that leads me to a very interesting point then we're going to talk about the characters, but I got to throw this out because you guys brought it up. A long time ago on IMDb, I saw this argument for the first time. And I heard somebody say that aliens reduces the alien to bugs. If you watch the first film first, there were so many other things the alien could have been. And there were so many things that were unexplored about what it was and that aliens, the only person I ever heard say, maybe was a limiting direction. I found that very interesting. It took me a long time to even warm my mind up enough to consider that point of view because Aliens is my favorite film of all time bar none. So I'm like, I will hear no criticism. But I just thought about it and thought about it. So I went back and looked at Alien with that frame in mind. And I could kind of see what they were talking about because we see so little of the alien. We see the first stage of its life cycle, but we haven't been introduced to the queen or the engineers or whatever the space jockey was or whatever. All that comes later. But we really have no idea what that thing is. And we don't see enough of it 
to get an idea. And a lot of people don't even notice that it has six fingers that have five fingers. And then later on in mythology, we find out it takes the shape of its host. So it looked humanoid because it came out of a human, which means if it had come out something different, it would look different. So there was a lot of different places they could have gone. And, and they said that aliens reduced them to just, you know, basically uh, steroid cockroaches. So uh, I thought that was a little harsh and I thought that was a little extreme and it still doesn't take away from how much I love the movie and I still don't agree with it. But I thought it was an interesting perspective. So what I want to ask you guys is, <clears throat> if you had made a follow-up, so let's throw aliens and everything out of our minds and let's go back and say, alien is all that we know. So if they had tasked you to write a follow-up, where would you take the story after Alien? Uh, start with Steve and then I'll give mine last. Yeah, oh man, that's really an interesting thought. Um, yeah, because it's kind of hard to divorce yourself from all of the stuff that came later. I right. certainly would not have done what the later movies did. Uh, but I, I kind of think that we can't completely know what the alien is. I, I, I think that um, you really have to keep the element of the unknown because the more that we learn about this thing, the more that we find out about it, the less power the uh, horror has. So um, you, you kind of have to maintain. <laughs> you you have to kind of maintain a certain distance from that. At the same time, uh, you can't uh, just duplicate what the first movie did because then uh, basically you're in horror film territory, and it's basically okay. How uh, we're bringing in these dumb. Uh, people to act as cannon fodder for them to be killed. Uh, but um, so you kind of have that problem. So I, I can understand why Cameron did what he did, which was to go in a completely different genre of science fiction. I, I think I probably would have done like some kind of different genre in there. I'm just, I would have to think a little bit about exactly uh, which other genres within science fiction would really work for that. But I, I would say that, that that basic thought was the right way to go. Um, and I would probably do something, you know, just completely out there that we haven't seen at all. Um, but, you know, again, you know, the, just kind of off the top of my head, I'm just spitballing on that. Okay, Nemesis, go ahead. What do you think? I think, like Steve, I definitely agree with Steve. It's, it's definitely hard to get everything that came afterwards out of your mind including your comment just now about being bugs. And I don't think that being bugs is necessarily a bad thing. Being bugs doesn't necessarily mean they're not intelligent. Right. I just think it's the way their society is built. Uh, I was thinking about that. This is off the top of my head, so you know, please critique it. But I think I would have done something with a colony team on the same planet, so LV-426, that shows up and... I think what I would have done is that you find out that that the Crescent ship, the space jockey ship, crash landed on LV-426 and broke into a cavern system. And so they were originally exposed and infected, you know, by these aliens that, you know, they had an ancient culture that lived underground or something. And so when this colony team shows up and they eventually find this stuff, you know, we build a little more mythology by them finding the entrance into this system and going down into these caves and then you know all hell breaks loose from there you know we 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 expand the mythology a little bit but we have this you know fledgling colony kind of like what you have in aliens but without the marines so they're there and then you have a pure horror movie where now you have uh you know a different kind of group 
but they're stuck on a planet without any help. And then maybe it would have led into a movie like Aliens because, you know, they're being overrun as they've uncovered uh, Pandora's box, you know. So figuratively, they've they've opened Pandora's box underneath the, the surface of this planet or something like that. So. Okay, uh, well, I must concur with both of your opinions that trying to divorce everything that we know happens is a difficult task. But here's what I would have done. And I'm not saying this would have been better. It's just what I would have done. If you know the original ending of Alien, the original ending of Alien was that the alien uh, defeats Ripley and bites her head off. The last shot of the movie was the alien speaking with her voice. So that monologue of this is wow. Ripley, Last Survivors and Stromo signing off was coming out of the alien's mouth. That was the original idea. So if we didn't do that in the first film, I would have set up something like that in the sequel, number one. Number two, what I would have done is I would have given them abilities like that that we didn't know that they had in the first film. Number three, I would have given them variations on a theme. So they wouldn't all be black. They were like one would come out and it was stark white. Why was it white? That kind of thing. And finally, what I would have done in a twist was I would have flipped the script on what Waylon Yutani thought they were doing. They thought they were going to get something for bioweapons engineering. I would have flipped the script and say whatever force was behind the aliens aimed them at Earth. So they planned on the Nostromo finding them. That was actually part of the plan. So if they ever got back to Earth, then whatever force was behind them was that's actually what they wanted. Now, that might have been too much for one movie. I might have to cut some of those ideas out, but that's kind of where my mind would have gone because uh, I that thing that Steve said first is 100% spot on. The more you know, the less scary it becomes. So the more you pull the camera back and the more you expand the lore and the mythology, which is why I think Cameron's movie was so perfect because they're scary. They're everything that they were, they are again. But now we met the queen which changes the game. So I think what he did was perfect, but that's what I would have done because you have to up the stakes without completely destroying the mystery. And that's the challenge of sequels of any kind is that, you know, what's different this time, but I can't completely just, you know, destroy what's come before. So, all right, now let's transition into characters. Uh, uh, we'll do kind of a, a, a brief thing, although it's difficult when you got all these characters to talk about. Uh, my favorite character was Parker. Uh, if you know anything about the backstory, Ripley and Dallas actually had a relationship. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, they didn't make it to the final film, but that was part of what was going on with them, which makes the tension between them make more sense when you understand that backstory. Um, my least favorite character is probably Dallas because he was such an unintelligent captain. I'm like, how did this guy get the job? None of your decisions are right. You know, I'm, I'm yelling at the screen because I'm that guy. And so um, my, uh, my favorite scene besides, well, no, no, small characters. So yeah, so my favorite was Parker, least favorite was Dallas. Um, what I liked the most about the characters is that they, they just weren't red shirts. 
like we talked about, we got some real truckers in space. We got some real working class guys. We got some people that all had different perspectives, but they were three dimensional. And so Granny Weaver talks about that in her interview about the movie. She was like, people were improvising all over the place. But those seasoned actors in a very short amount of time told us who those characters were and made us care about them. And that's what seasoned actors are able to do. Um, I uh, uh, The other thing is when I'm looking at the characters, um, it made me wonder why they didn't have a protocol for such a thing. Because how could you not have a protocol for such a thing? But maybe that's just my, you know, maybe that's just my sci-fi fan mind talking. And maybe I'm not being fair to the characters, but I was like, some somebody somewhere would have to be thinking, what if we run into something we don't know nothing about? What do we do? And uh, so we so the movie does kind of explain that, just not in the way that's why I didn't like Dallas, because I was like, dude, you got nothing, man. How are you the captain? Uh, but anyway. And so, uh, but I thought they were wonderful. I thought they were three-dimensional. We cared about each death. Uh, we, we cared about what happened to them. Um, and of course, Jonesy steals the show. The cat steals every scene that he's in uh, because the cat is just over it because animals are always smarter than people in horror films. Movie rule. I think I've said that before on Twitter. Animals are always smarter than people. They always know what's up before people do for all the reasons that animals are what they are, and people never listen to them. I'm like, listen to the cat, listen to the dog. They know what's up. But anyway, but I thought the characters were wonderful. I didn't have any really any complaints about, except for Dallas just being kind of, you know, a meathead. Um, I thought Ripley being anal by the book and marriage of protocol was perfect. I thought Sigourney pulled that off perfectly. We understand that kind of person. And uh, she did that well. And um, and the only other stupid move was at the end when Parker Lambert died. I was like, no, no, that's not the way to deal with that. But uh, anyway, they were stressed. I'll cut them some slack. But other than that, I just thought they were great. They were great. And if they had all survived, I'd watch another movie with them in it. That's how much I liked them. So give me your thoughts on the character Star Wars Nemesis. Uh, yeah, let's see. My favorite character, um, well, let me go least favorite. My least favorite character is a tie. Uh, one of them is definitely one of yours, which was Dallas. And it's Dallas for one reason and one reason only. They did have a protocol for quarantine, you know, with the foreign substance. In fact, Ripley cites it to him, and Dallas makes the worst call of, bad calls in a space movie, you know, one of the worst calls of all time. It's like, if he had just followed the protocol, man, put him in the airlock and treat Kane in the airlock, do whatever you need to do. Then none of that happens. They don't die. You know, they just eject that alien right out the airlock. If he comes out of Kane, but he decides to, to not follow the protocol, not think about it rationally and go with his feelings. And it was just, I had no time for that, you know, and some guy who's out there, um, you know, maybe that's, I, I didn't even find, I found it unbelievable to a certain extent because it's like you are out millions of miles from home in space. The only people you can count on is yourself. You are doing everything you can to mitigate risk because 
you know, you start a bad chain of events and it's all over. And no one will ever know what happened to you because you'll just disappear like these people did. Um, except for the fact that Ripley got out, no one would have ever known what happened in the Nostromo at all. Ever. Uh, the other character I don't have a lot of time for is Lambert. Uh, she annoys the hell out of me. Uh, especially since at the beginning, she's a queen bitch. And then suddenly when stress and everything else takes over, she turns into a, a, a useful slobbering mess that can't do anything, you know? So it's like, and I've known a lot of people like that in my life who talk a good game. And then when, you know, push comes to shove, suddenly they, they can't accomplish anything. And, and, and so I just don't have a whole lot of time for her. And the fact that she was constantly riding, uh, you know, Ripley just made it that much worse, you know? So it was like, she was just not real likable for me. Uh, my favorite characters, I already talked about them, are Parker and um, Brett. Brett. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> both of them. I didn't realize till a couple weeks ago that uh, the actor who plays uh, Parker also played Dr. Kananga in Live and Let Die. Mm -hmm. And I love that movie. I love that character. And I love that actor. He's really great. And uh, everything that he does, the way he reacts, is the way i would react if i was in the same situation i really i empathize with that character a lot and then uh harry dean stanton is just wonderful you know he's just a wonderful actor he's a homey guy and so watching him play brett um uh, i i just can't help but identify with him and so the, those two the situation they're in the way that re they react and everything absolutely i buy it 100 percent and then um the only thing I'll say, you know, the other characters, you know, Kane is, is hardly in it at all. It eventually dies. And then there's a guy that we'll, we could talk about in a little bit, but I think he did an incredible job. He's just a snake. And then uh, Jonesy. I think the damn cat is in with it, with the alien on this whole thing. Honestly, I think he made, he made a deal. That alien cornered that cat and that cat sold them all out. You watch that movie again, you look at that cat's face. He's like, that's right. That's right. It's like you get those people, and then you and me are gonna party. You just don't eat me. So, Jonesy's in on it, you know. And Jonesy survives. He's like resilient. So, but uh, and whoever played Jonesy, that suit was believable. That is an amazing looking cat suit. So, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll add for the characters. Uh, you know, if you want to use it, I do have um, a scene from the movie queued up that we could play too at some point after. Uh, Shadewing talks if we want to check it out. So, okay, all right. A couple of things before we go to Steve. Uh, number one, that uh, actor Jaffa Cutto, who passed uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, who played Parker. Um, I I forgot that Ripley actually did call him on the protocol when he's trying to bring Kane back. What I was thinking about was when Parker was saying, "Why don't you freeze him?" Because mm -hmm. everything after they get him back on the ship to me was just dumb, and what Parker said was right. Since you've allowed this contamination in our space, which you're right, he overrode protocol to do that. Now, Ripley, that's an order. And she's like, no, we can't do it. And then Ash does it. But after that happened, I was like, well, the smartest thing to do, because I hadn't thought about operating on them or doing whatever in the airlock. What I thought about is if whatever's going on, we need to put that suspended animation or hypersleep or whatever. We need to put some cold on that because, <laughs> you know, bad things tend not to live in the cold. And if we're going to keep it with us. 
And then I would have put it in another part of the ship, like you said, in the airlock or close to it, to where, where we can jettison it if necessary. So that's the whole head scratching part for me, but okay. And then also for those of you that watched the Avengers movie, Harry Dean Stanton is in the Avengers movie. He's the janitor on the ground when Ru uh, Ruffalo wakes up after he's hulked out after the big fight on the helicarrier. And all of his winks are to the alien movie. That's what those winks are about. Uh, son, are you an alien? You know, you've got a condition, all this different kind of stuff. That's what that's talking about. So go ahead, Steve, uh, thoughts on characters. Yeah, uh, I would say my least favorite or the same is uh, Nemesis for uh, similar reasons. Um, actually, I probably disliked Lambert more because <laughs> she is just absolutely useless. She is somebody that is cowardly throughout this whole movie, and she amounts to nothing. And what makes it worse is she's contrasted against Ripley, who is one of the most badass heroines in science fiction history, and she looks like a clown in comparison. And I'm just like, you are lucky you are hanging out with Parker because you would have been dead from this thing in five <laughs> minutes. Why did this thing not kill her first? Um, yeah, did not like her at all. Um, yeah, Dallas, uh, I have to agree. He, he is a bad captain. And honestly, the only thing saving this character is the fact that Tom Skerritt does such a good job in playing the character. Uh, he absolutely has the charisma and he owns the role. You, there's no question this guy's the captain, you know, just from his presence. The problem is, is that his decisions are so bad. You're wondering why nobody is trying to mutiny, uh, including Ripley. Like Ripley should have been the captain. And, and I have to say, after Dallas, uh, disappears, um, I'm just sort of like, oh my god, good, this is excellent, because that way, he, Ripley's in charge, we're going to get better decisions now. I was, I, I just love that. Um, yeah, favorite character, I mean, obviously you got to love Ripley. I, I, I just, you know, she's, she just is one of the best characters, and she has a really great arc even in this movie. Uh, I, I ended up loving her, like, uh, immediately watching this movie, and I watched this movie first, so. Um, and it, because, you know, you, she goes from being the by-the-book character to saying, okay, you know what, uh, we're in a desperate situation. I am going to kill this damn thing, and I don't care what I have to do to kill this thing uh, by the end because there's just no other way. That's her transformation arc, and it's and it really is well handled. Uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver, um, you know, hadn't been around that long at that point, and she just absolutely cements the role. And keep in mind that she won out this role against Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep was wow. her leading opposition, and she and she won on that. Um, and some and actually, Meryl Streep had to drop out uh, because uh, you know the, her her boyfriend at the time had died. But you know, I, I really can't imagine now Meryl Streep being in that role because uh, Sigourney Weaver solidified it so well over over the movie she was in, particularly even in this one. And so, yeah, you gotta love Ripley. Uh, Parker, um, I, I didn't like him at first because I thought he was a little too mercenary and he was just constantly whining about, you know, oh, please pay me and we need to talk about our bonuses and I don't want to go over here unless you pay me. Um, but I like his arc by the end. By the end, I really liked him because, you know, he was saying things that made sense. Uh, the bit about freezing and I'm like, yeah, why don't you answer his question about freezing him? You should be freezing them. What are you doing? So, yeah, I wasn't surprised that Parker was the second to last to die because he was the, the smartest person aside from Ripley, <laughs> easily. I'll, I'll also yeah. add this in for Parker as well. When the alien first hatches or erupts from the chest and it's yeah. vulnerable, who's the person yeah. that immediately reached for a knife and would have ended the whole movie right there because he would have put a <laughs> yeah, knife through the alien? 
Yeah, it was Parker. Parker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's practical and he's pragmatic and he's sensible. So you, you like him for that. And plus, you know, you need that kind of guy in the situation. You know, particularly by the end. So he's the survivor, and I really think that he's the only reason Lambert was alive because he was protecting her the whole time. Uh, so you know, got to give him props for that. He did look out for somebody other than himself by the end. So yeah. I, I got to give him that. Uh, Although Ash, mm-hmm. I, I have right. to say, I just have to to chime in real quick on Parker though. It's like. When he saved Lambert, I don't know about you guys. You know, I hope somebody else is with me. I was sitting there going, Parker, don't do it. She's not worth it, man. It's like, save yourself, brother. She wasn't. Get she, wasn't. she wasn't. She wasn't. She wasn't worth saving. No, I agree. It's kind of like Dallas in that respect. Uh, but, yeah, Ash, um, I, the, the, the twist about this character, I think, um, is yeah, not we're, we're, we're going to talk about him in a minute. Hold that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to say that it wasn't foreshadowed sufficiently. So by the time that it comes around, um, it's sort of like, what is this? And and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but Ian Holm, who uh, you probably would know better as Bilbo Baggins from Fellowship of the Ring, um, yeah. is very good in it. I mean, I, I, I will say that his performance is excellent. Um and yeah, and then uh, John Hurt. John Hurt's always good. Um, I'll always think of him as the War Doctor. So yeah, it's always good to see him here, even though his character doesn't amount a whole lot. Uh, it's nice to see him here. Um, and then yeah, the cat. I mean, and oh yeah, and Brett of course is, is yeah. I mean, Brett is basically the the, the kind of like the sidekicky character, but he's good in that role. Um, it's it, I actually found out he was in the Battle of Okinawa, so. Uh, you know, he comes across as like the experienced veteran of, of the crew, and, and, I, and I like that aspect to him. So, I mean, all these characters are, are very believable. They don't give you necessarily a lot of time with them, but the time they give you is quality time. So you get to know all of them, and you care about all of them. So by the time that they're being killed off one by one, you care about what happens to them. Well, except Lambert. I mean, she can go away. Um, and Jonesy, uh, yeah, obviously Jonesy steals the show. I, 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 my, my general meme with him is always uh, he is the true last survivor of the Nostromo, but we'll talk about that when we get to the next film. That's right. That's right. Okay. And then says, you, you said you had a clip? Yeah, let's see. Let's check this out real quick. So let me add this and then I'll start it up. Here we go. Kill him, kill him now. (laughs) Once again, Parker is like, you know, trying to get the thing in his mouth if he's gagging. How could you ever have a meal on that table again? Those those practical effects are outstanding. Yeah, they are. Right here. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to cut it off because of what Steve was saying. I don't think they gave us like serious foreshadowing, but they gave us some because right here, who mm-hmm. stopped? Who stopped Parker? It's Ash, yeah. which is yeah, interesting. I- yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, he was in with Waylon Yutani the whole time. I don't think that was the the thing I had a problem with. It's more what he is than who he what? is. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Okay, now we're going to talk about that. But before I 
gonna, we're going to talk about five moments. But before I get to that, I want to talk about how this movie, once again, it does that thing where it shows you the hierarchical thinking. I don't know if it's Western. I don't know if it's human. All I know is it's consistent that if you're the boots on the ground guy, they think your voice is not important just because you don't have a title. But the most practical responder is always Parker. Not sometimes. Uh, Parallel only maybe by Ripley, who's holding on the protocol. But the two practical people who had a handle on the situation are ignored because of a title, because of a rank. That always feels to me like a high school cafeteria. Because when I was in high school, I didn't understand why. Why do they keep saying we have to be like the cool kids? Why? What if you don't want to be like them? What if you're not them? But it's like that social order is what makes people think that whatever you say is supposed to go. That's what it always feels like to me, which is why I like Parker so much, because that's exactly how I would respond. And I kind of switch. I'm like, what is wrong with y'all? It's interesting you say that, because that's very much a military thing. One of the things they try and teach us, not all officers incorporate, but you know, when you come out as a lieutenant, you're technically in charge, but what do you know? compared to a sergeant who's been in the army for 25 years, you know? So yeah, you're in charge, but you have to lean on the experience of others who are more practical and the best leaders, especially in hierarchical systems are always the ones that listen to the people who are closest to the ground, you know, because you're seeing the big picture, but when you want to know what the real situation is, you need to be able to listen and sit back and take in information. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make this devolve into a whole leadership seminar, but that is definitely a failing of quite a few people. And I think it's a failing of Dallas here, to be perfectly yeah. honest. So, yeah, Ripley does a lot better at that. I mean, she's the one hanging around with Brendan Parker most of the time. Yeah. Right, right. That's exactly right. And so that part just amazed me because it does, it costs lives. It costs lives in the fiction world and it costs lives in the real world where, you know, where you don't have, you're a leader because of some other reason than the fact that you've earned it or demonstrated leadership capability always costs lives in fictional worlds and real worlds. That's amazing. But that jumped out to me too. Like, you you guys are just the grunts. So what you say doesn't matter. I was like, okay, y'all gonna regret that. But anyway, so here come the moments. Instead of doing them all at once, because I know we got a lot to say, we'll do them one at a time. Here's the first moment I wanna talk about. Uh, you might disagree, and if you disagree, give me the pushback. I want to hear it. I personally think Cain deserved to die. You know why Cain deserved to die? Because you don't stick your face in no alien egg. That's why. Okay, so he's on the ship, and he sees all this stuff, and he doesn't know what's going on, and he says, no, we must go on. We have to go on. He had me up until that point, and I was like, hmm. Maybe we need backup. Maybe we need weapons. Maybe we need something to test the air. Maybe we need something that has some type of science or military uh, uh, protocol to it because you're stepping into the unknown and you don't know if your suit will protect you. You don't know if the atmosphere is breathable. And I don't hear any mention of weapons. 
So that's what I mean when I say, when you set up the premise that we're answering an unknown beacon and we don't understand its full point of origin and we don't understand if it's human because the outset unknown, unknown. I'm saying to myself, uh, now you need to be going in with something. Are you testing radioactivity? Are you testing oxygen content? Do you have a, at least a flamethrower? Most things are afraid of fire, but he didn't do nothing. He's like, no, well, we found the ship. Well, I got to keep going. I'm like, yeah, okay. And then <laughs> this man sticks his face. <laughs> he sticks his face in the alien. And that thing just opened up with the ominous ah sound. I'm like, okay, I would have been like, you know what? <laughs> Let me get my hat. <laughs> I'll send y'all a radio message. And he says, he does this right here. <laughs> Wait a minute. And I'm like, so I don't know. I don't know if that's a me thing. I don't know. I don't know what that is. All I know is my mama taught me better than sticking my face in something I don't know nothing about. And then he comes sticking his face in it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, dude, you deserve that. Sorry. Sorry you found out the hard way that you don't stick your face and you don't even know what that was. That wasn't like a chicken egg, like you could fry it or boil it. You don't know what that was. But anyway, so let me hear you guys' thoughts. Go ahead, Nemesis. That's our first moment. Kane sticking his face in the air. Yeah, I I have to absolutely agree with this. Every time I watch this movie for the very first time, I'm like, this is one of those classic. This is this is this is what makes a horror movie because there's always a character where you're going, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You're just like yelling at the screen, you know. And then as a kid that grew up, you know, uh, my backyard, it was a weird situation, but we. We were rural and urban at the same time, so I could go in and go on hikes and stuff like that. We always had a stick. You know, they don't have space sticks or something like that. It's like when you see something like that, you know, we have rattlesnakes and gophers and coyotes. I see something in a hole or whatever. I either leave it alone, which is my first choice, mm -hmm. or if I'm going to mess with it, I take a stick and I poke it. You know, <laughs> it's like it's very simple. It's like they, they – why would you do that? It's like if I saw something disappear in a hole here and put my face down there and get bit by a rattlesnake, whose fault is it? It's my fault, you know? So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree, 100%. They did the same thing in Pitch Black, one of the alien ripoffs. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I don't know that I quite go strong uh, as as far as to say, well, he deserved to die, but God, he was stupid. Uh, I, I just, they have a habit I think this is very much a case of evil always triumphs because good is dumb. Um, and it's kind of like you were saying earlier, DT, that there's a certain amount of stupid that ends up having to happen, you know, for horror to work. And I think Kane was elected as the resident idiot. <laughs> this movie. Uh, and, and yeah, because it's like, yeah, they're all putting their faces all over the place. Uh, Dallas does this, too. Um, you know, we see this later and they, they don't even learn from this. Because later on, you know, they have the face hugger and they're trying to dissect the face hugger. And what do all these people do? They lean in to look at the face hugger. <laughs> you, you know what the same Delta came and you're leaning in like an idiot. You don't know that this thing isn't dead. You don't know that this thing might not come back to life and, and try to, to grab your face as well and, and, and give it, put alien babies in you. You have no idea what this thing's going to do, and you're doing that. The only one who gets, who gets a pass on this in any respect is Ash. 
because of what he is. Everybody else, it's it's just ridiculous. And yeah, Kane Kane just does does. I mean, unfortunately, uh, as much as I love John Hurt, he really ends up playing one of the dumbest characters in this movie, and it's a shame. That you just reminded me of something. I mean, well, it's another scene, so hopefully this is not something DT's going to bring up. But you were talking about the face hugger. Well, what mm-hmm. about when it came off of Kane? And then yep. three people just walk in there willy-nilly with no protection yep. on. They're looking around yep. and stuff. <laughs> was right. Why are you bringing this thing on board? Uh, Parker was right. Why aren't you freezing this thing? You yeah. know, any, any, anything sensible that they, they could have done would have been better than what they actually did. It's just, I mean, ever, the, between Dallas and Kane and, and Ash encouraging it, it was just a, a disaster. Yeah. Now, it's not fair for me to say this next thing based on 2020 experience, but I'm going to say it anyway. My thought is also uh, spores and anything that's airborne. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, if, if we're dealing with an alien entity, you're just assuming, you know, does it use oxygen, nitrogen, methane? It was feeding him oxygen, but we don't know how it breathes, if it breathes, or what that means. But you don't know what else it's carrying. We know enough about rats and flies to know that maybe <laughs> you don't want to stick your face in a nest, but here we are in outer space with something that's unknown and uncategorized, and we don't all have on our helmets or filters or or maybe a line where it says, you know, I've cranked up the air filters to clear the air, just something like that. Yeah. But I'm like, uh, uh, they, they did this the same nonsense in Alien Covenant, and uh, they actually did use the spores in that. So that's one of the reasons, uh, among many, why I despise that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Lord, when we get to that one. Anyway, okay. So that's moment number one. Here comes moment number two. Moment number two is the one we just saw the emergence of the chest burster. That, James Cameron said, Ridley Scott made a movie that shocked the world. That shocked the world. That, that scene is probably. If it's not the top, it's top three of the all-time scary, shocking moments ever captured on film. So my response to that was, I wouldn't be eating no more spaghetti off that table. But anyway, uh, my response to that scene was, uh, how come it wasn't foreshadowing with Ash, but I would have been like, how come this dude is talking about don't kill it? What do you mean don't kill it? You know what I'm saying? Like, why is that your reaction? And we're going to talk about Ash in a minute. We're going to, we're going to let that rip. But I'm like, what you mean don't kill it? Because in movie rule, find it on Twitter, there's always somebody on the crew that's more concerned about the rights of the monster than the people they're killing. I can't with that. There's nothing in my brain that makes that okay to me. I don't get that. So, but when that thing came out, when it first cracked his chest, they froze. I would have left the room. <laughs> I would have been like, okay, I got to bounce. I, whatever's happening next, I don't, I'm not going to be close to that. Because <clears throat> when it first happened, they all froze. And what's what's clear is that you hear the blood spurt, you see the blood splat, and then they all are like, what? And I'm like, I don't need to see the next thing. So give me your reaction to that scene. Uh, and, and maybe I should cut on some slack because it's heated a moment. Maybe. But I would have left. Go ahead, Steve. 
I think we all would have. <laughs> so I don't disagree with you on that. Okay. Uh, as far as the chestburster scene goes, I mean, it is one of the classic scenes. And, and it, I mean, you can see, like, um, all the practical effects and, and how well they did it. You know, how well they showed the blood. You know, how well they showed the, the you know, the cuts back and forth from Kane. You know, to the to the other characters trying to stop uh, this thing from happening. You know, all all of this is is, is generally really really well shot. Uh, you know, the the the, the chest as it comes out. I mean, it looks really really believable. Um, there there are times when it looks a little comical, uh, uh, but you know, given uh, that this is like ni- early nineteen eighties technology or late seventies. I'm sorry, I think it was seventy eight uh, that this came out. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you can really definitely forgive that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and I will say, definitely, it's a movie that will make you lose your lunch, and a scene that will make you lose your lunch forever. It is, it, it, it really is that well done. But I, I, I will also say, I really like that they set it up, you know, really slowly, and how you know Kane slowly starts getting worse and worse until uh, he starts having this the violent reaction. Um, and and and, and I kind of like the, the the last supper aspect of that. This is the last time. We see the crew together uh, before the deaths start happening, and they get these, you know, relatively quiet scene, you know, with them just being uh, a crew for the last time, and then it's just violently destroyed by this chestburster ripping its way out of Kane uh, in a violent way, um, and and it's gruesome and it's brilliant, um, you know. Yeah, aside from you know, aside from little things like yeah, why aren't the characters running, or you know, why aren't they killing Kane, or killing this thing why are they letting this alien run out of the room um you know aside from little things like that you know i i still think it is one of really a a beautifully shot scene and a uh one of the great horror movie scenes of all time really and the actors weren't entirely sure what was going to happen so a lot of those reactions are legitimate like when veronica cartwright gets sprayed with blood she's like oh god that was real because she didn't see that coming go ahead nims reaction to that scene yeah, I, I got a couple of different uh, levels of feeling about this scene. I think it's it's great. Uh, every chestburster scene in every movie that features aliens is shocking to me, which is surprising. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. doesn't matter how many variations I've seen of it. It's always disturbing and uh, violating and wonderful, you know? <laughs> so those three words probably shouldn't go together, but they do uh, when it comes to this. I have read that Ridley Scott actually had all of these crew members sit down in character as like almost like a method acting thing and start eating dinner so they could get comfortable together. And so they were in character, but just kind of kibitzing while they're doing dinner and everything. And then they started the scene and you could definitely see that everybody is absolutely 100% in character with how they're going to react. And it makes sense. You see the beginning of Lambert's cowardice right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see uh, Parker's uh, action. Once again, you see Ash's, you know, ulterior motives. Uh, uh, Brett is kind of useless in this scene. He's kind of sitting there just smoking on a cigarette, trying to hold on to, you know, on onto the guy's legs. Ripley is a little shocked. But the one, I think, once again, this is, this is Dallas's second you know, test. This is his second ability time to exert leadership, and he does it. I understand that Parker is not going to challenge Ash. Ash is a science officer. So Parker is going to react and kill this guy or kill this thing, and Ash steps in. But a strong leader, you see this thing. You've brought this guy onto your ship. It bursts out. It's killed one of your crew members. 
You don't know what this thing's going to do. You don't know if this could turn into another face hugger or whatever else. If you're Dallas, you're either pushing Ash aside or you're ordering Parker to go in there and Ripley going. You are doing something. You're exerting control because now one of your crew members is dead and Dallas does nothing. So this is his second ultimate failing here as a captain and as a leader. Kane's death is his fault. Flat out his fault. Yep. <laughs> Which transitions greatly into my next moment. I've been wanting to say this for a long time. Definitely you guys give me some pushback, but this is what I think. Uh, I want to talk about Dallas's death. Uh, not that, you know, Brent's death, we got the revelation of the creature and everything. It just food for thought. The first thing we see from the creature is the tail, and then it descends. What was it hanging on? Tail comes down first, then it comes down like that. What's it hanging on while it descends? But you're throwing that out. But anyway, Dallas's death was so stupid. The more I thought about it, I'm like, really, dude, you're another one that deserved to croak. You know why you deserve to croak? I'll tell you why you deserve to croak. If you said this thing is moving in the air vents, and then you demonstrate the ability to close the air vents remotely because they were circular and they folded together. That means you didn't have to go down there. That means all you had to do was close the vents and trap it in wherever it was. Then somehow, if you you know had a wind system or any type of flushing system, which you would have to have, then you could blow it out of the air airlock remotely. I've been trying to figure out all these years what he was trying to do going down there with a flamethrower. Because I'm like, you had the thing trapped. And I was like, okay, well, you're another one. This is like, yeah, okay, guess you deserve to die. And then, you know, Lambert's screaming, it's on the move, and it's right there, and blah, blah, blah. Not that way, but I'm saying to myself, yeah, wait, wait, wait. You went down there, then you got scared, then you say, okay, help me get out. So what was your purpose? I just didn't understand anything in that scene. I'm like, okay, well, you deserve to croak. So give me your thoughts on that. Did Dallas, Dallas deserve to buy it? My answer is yes. Go ahead, Nemesis. <laughs> Did Dallas deserve to buy it? Yes. I don't think he deserved to buy it, but I think he knew he was going to buy it. But I think this scene, you know, this may be me reading too much into it, but that's what we do. So I'm going to read too much into it. Uh, I think Dallas knew that he was a failure, that he had failed as a leader. He had failed as a captain. An effective, strong leader at that point orders Parker into those vents if you're going to order anybody in there to go hunt down that alien. But he knows that he has failed his crew twice, at least. He knows that he has really, I think, honestly, in his mind, I would say that he thinks that he's he doesn't deserve to be captain. There's a little bit, of, there's a lot of guilt there on what he has done. And so he's trying to redeem himself in the crew's eyes, but more importantly, I think he's trying to redeem himself in his own eyes and goes and does something extremely stupid, you know? And uh, it doesn't always make sense, but when you are the leader of anything, your job is to lead. And so it seems cowardly, but a lot of times you send the grunts, you send the lower level people to go do the, the real work, you know? because your job is something else. 
And when a leader decides to take on that role, it's because he's trying to prove something, always. No matter what, they're always trying to prove something. And to me, I think that, that this is really an example of Dallas trying to prove him to himself that he's worthwhile because he knows that two in two instances he has failed and gotten people killed because of it. So that is a really great theory, really great, and a good reflection on his own internal acknowledgement of his leadership failure. Go ahead, Steve. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily go. I think it's a really interesting theory. Um, I was kind of leaning a little bit more towards uh, he was trying to prove things to Ripley uh, because I, I really honestly think he was thinking with his pants, honestly. <laughs> like he was like, because he, he and Ripley had, at that point had had, um, you know, definitely strong disagreements. And um, they, they definitely implied the relationship uh between them and I believe the intention was that they had had a thing and that this is you know something that kind of went on like uh, casually all the time aboard the ship but there was a, there was a definitely a connection there and he was trying to protect her quite a few times I think he was trying to protect Ripley because Ripley was the one who had offered to go previously okay. and I think he said no I am not going to let uh, you put, put you at risk I am going to do this and I'm going to be the man here um, but the thing is, is that it's stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because, you know, as you, as you said, because, uh, yeah, the, they had the access uh, remotely to close the doors. Now, I don't know how effective that would have been for a creature that can spit acid uh, strong enough to melt bulkheads. Um, maybe he would have found a way out anyway, and maybe they needed somebody to go and make sure that this thing was trapped. That I could maybe buy, but here's one other problem. Why are you going alone down there? No one should be going alone anywhere on this ship when you know you have this thing running around. This is this is this is the thing that always gets me in horror films. Do not split the party. Never, never, ever split the party. You know why? Because when you split the party, people die. And this is exactly what happens in this movie. Nobody. I mean, the only person who really thinks like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing that is Ripley, uh, and that doesn't happen until after this scene. So yeah, the, 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 this this was ridiculous. I mean, and the thing is, yeah, Dallas is is not a good leader at all. Uh, is he aware of it? I don't know. Maybe subconsciously he is. Uh, maybe he thinks, okay, the the crew knows that you know um, I've screwed up and screwed up badly, and people have died. I've got to get their trust back. You know, maybe there's an element of that. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some some of that going on. But I don't know. It, it could be we are reading way too much into it than than uh, Ridley Scott intended uh, with his character. But yeah, the, he's a bad leader. <laughs> These people all die because of of, of Dallas, and um, and he re and he reaps the consequences personally because of all the bad decisions that he's made, uh, including letting this thing on board, including letting Kane die, and not putting him into cryostasis and and all the other stuff. Two, yeah. two, hard, two hard and fast movie rules. When you split the party, people die. And when Mr. Bigglesworth gets mad, people die. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, Nemesis, <laughs> Nemesis has given me a whole new dimension on this because now I'm going to watch it with that in mind because that actually makes a lot of sense to me because it is very much the actions of someone who's trying to compensate for failures that they can't compensate for. So they do an act of bravado to say that, you know, maybe I got this or, you know, I'm going to take charge now. It was too late. There's, you know, two lives gone now. 
And now here you come with your plan because it never made sense to me why you go down there and then you say, I want to get out of here. It never made sense to me why you demonstrate that you can close events remotely. You say, I got to go down there. No, you don't. But anyway, that makes sense to me now. Someone that's embarrassed and realized I have messed up. So let me let me look macho maybe in my last minutes of life. That's making a lot of sense, actually. Okay, on to our next moment. It's a big moment we've been waiting to talk about. The revelation of Ash. Okay? Uh, sloppy spoiler, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie from 1979. Sorry, got the spoiler for you. <laughs> uh, uh, Ash is a robot. Ash is an android. Ash is a twitchy model uh, from the Hyperdyne systems that they don't quite have it together yet. And it begins to break down. But we discover the real villain of the piece. And the real villain of the piece is the corporate bosses back on Earth who sent them out there on purpose, which begs the deeper question, how did Waylon Utani find out about the derelict ship and the alien and the xenomorphs and the eggs? How did they know? Was it a rumor? Because they kind of deal with that in Aliens, but in Alien, they say that the company kind of knew what was going on and that the crew's lives were expendable, bring back life form, all of the priorities rescinded. That's what Ash said. So there's so much that goes on in that revelation. It's one of the most brilliant secondary revelation scenes I think I've ever seen and very hard to pull off when you have a moment that's almost as big as your big moment, which is the chestburster scene. But in that moment, we find out again that Waylon Yutani is the off-screen, unseen puppeteer villains of everything that's happened, which gives us the big corporate evil backdrop. We also see that Ash has been on this thing side from the jump. And towards the end there, they started to sense that. Ripley started to get that. They started to get that Ash has never helped us. He's always helped this thing survive. And then we find out that he's a robot that just got twitchy and started, you know, spitting up milk and yogurt and whatnot. And just, you know, his guts, again, were very, very visceral. It wasn't like your typical robot where it's a bunch of gears and wires. It was guts and milk. And it was, it was a trip. So that, again, again, putting on my writer's hat, that was brilliant. We didn't see that coming. It shocked the characters and us. It all of a sudden pulls the curtain back a little bit more on the story. And all of a sudden we see Waylon Yutani completely differently. And we see that this was actually not a random experience. This was not a random thing. There's some planning behind it on their part. And I just thought it was brilliant. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought it was funny how he started to melt down and he's trying to choke Ripley out. I'm like, why wouldn't you just grab her throat and choke Because <laughs> he's... <laughs> He takes a magazine and he's trying, and I'm like, why don't you just take them robot hands and did you know that? Yeah, but anyway, that trachea would crush really much more easily. But anyway, so uh, that's going on. And uh, I like how he does, because remember, this is the late 70s. So he actually does the robot when he's dying, which I thought was hilarious, because he does that, which was the dance, which was hilarious. And uh, so it was just great. It was just great. And even when they bring him back, he smarmy to the end, literally. Right before Parker burns him, burns him, Ash is like, I won't lie to you about your chances, but I will say, 
you have my sympathies. I'm like a robot with an attitude. <laughs> so uh, give me your thoughts on that scene. Start with Steve. Yeah, that was a great last line. I, 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 the character of Ash, um, I, I really kind of felt like he was not very well foreshadowed, which is the one problem I have with him. Um, we never get any in indication that robots exist in this universe or that androids exist in this universe. And there's really, and really, so when it hits, the revelation kind of comes out of nowhere. The only hints we have are just like little behaviors here and there. Um, Ian Holm does occasionally act a little robotic. Like, you know, he'll do a little bit of a health tilt that looks a little bit robotic, th those kinds of little mannerisms. But we never uh, find out, oh, yeah, they have, like, David models uh, back on Earth, and, you know, why wish there had been a, an android with us because he could take care of the, of the, of the alien. No, no the, none of this is ever brought up. So because of that, um, it, it clearly kind of comes out of nowhere. We know that Ash is in with Waylon Utami. Uh, that has definitely has always come in kind of a, a recurring thing because yeah, why else is he saving this thing? You know, clearly because he's doing the work of that. And they do make an issue a little bit of Ash um, as a as a as a wedge between Dallas and Ripley because Ripley does not trust him, and for good reason. I wouldn't trust him either. Um, you know, he's definitely very cold. Um, he's definitely very distant. Um, you, you, you'd really, he's very secretive and you can tell that as well. And Dallas never asks any of those questions. Ripley's the one who's asking all the questions about this guy. Uh, it's like, why, you know, okay, why are you trust letting, why are you trusting him with this crucial task? Um, you know, and not at least putting some oversight on him or at least putting somebody with him to watch him, you know, to make sure he doesn't do something stupid. Uh, there, there's, there's none of that. So, you know, the, the, it is very clear that, um, that he's a plant. And I think that's foreshadowed very well. It's just that, you know, we don't get, until we start spitting milk all over the place and he starts bleeding milk out of, uh, out of his brow, you don't really get to see that he is a robot and he is malfunctioning. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I will say that I like the way androids have generally worked in the series. And um, I will say just kind of very briefly that one of the fa my favorite things uh, in Alien is the worker Joes from the Alien Isolation video game because they show how creepy these robots are. And I feel like they drew very much from this movie with Ash in showing how creepy, you know, these robots are because they are so soulless. We depend so much on them. And so when they turn on you, I mean, it is an absolutely frightening thing. And so they play the horror, not just with the alien, but with Ash. Um, and so, I, yeah, it really works. And yeah, he's a very, very smarmy villain till the end. Um, he, 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 there is definitely a humanity, or I, won't, I don't want to say a humanity to him, but they replicate certain human behaviors with him enough that he can pass for human. And I find that really, really interesting as well. Yeah, he's, he's, he's an interesting character. And I think Ian Holm just absolutely nailed it. I mean, great actor. I didn't mind there not being any foreshadowing because I thought it added to the punch of the reveal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's what we call a retro reveal in that it changes everything you thought about the movie up to that point. So that's what I thought at its core is brilliant. Go ahead, Nims, that scene, the reveal of Ash. Yeah, I agree with Steve that they, they didn't do a very good job foreshadowing that he was a robot. Uh, the first time I saw this, it came completely out of nowhere, you know, and uh, every time since then, it still comes completely out of nowhere, which means there really was no, you know, foreshadowing. There was no way to know that he's a robot. You can't go back and look at anything really and, and, and see that. With you, I'm kind of like, I, I let it go. 
And honestly, to be honest with you, I think, and this is once again me theorizing, you know, I think Dallas knew he was a robot. I think Dallas knew who 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 he was. That's why Dallas defers to him in certain situations because mm. Wayla Mutani put a robot on there as their representative. And so here's me trying to get an A in my English class from the, the English professor here, you know, uh, having the robot as the 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 extension of the company gives the company that robotic soulless uh, exterior, that that functionality that you want. You know, it's like the arm of the company is this thing that doesn't take human emotion into account. It doesn't do any of that. And it admires this uh, this it's alien and its purity and stuff. And it's it's horrible. And that reflects on the company as well. And I think that's a deliberate choice, you know. Um, Oh, go ahead, Steve. You look like you're. No, I was just going to say it makes sense that Dallas uh, probably knew. Um, it, he had access to a lot of information through the ship's computer, and the ship's computer probably told him any number of things. It, right. It's certainly possible that that could have been part of it. Yeah. Well, they say that in Aliens, because Burke says we always have a synthetic on board as standard practice. Uh -huh. So I agree with you. I think Dallas would have had to have known. Yeah. And then the other thing I'll add is that, um, and this is going to go to your comments about the magazine. To me, I don't know, maybe it's just saying some bad stuff about me that I would even know this. That is a particularly horrible way to die. It, you can't kill somebody that way and, and, and suffocate them. And to me, it made perfect sense. And it made Ash that much worse because what he's doing there is that if Parker never comes in and sees what he's doing to Ripley and Ripley just dies, it looks like she just died. There's no marks on her throat. There's oh. nothing. Okay. And so she's dead. You know, and uh, you could blame it on any number of things, but she's just dead and you never know what happens. And that that makes it even more insidious, you know, that what he's doing. So I, I thought that was a nice touch and pretty, pretty horrible at the same time. So, no, that makes a lot of sense, because unless you have extreme forensic skills and you can somehow detect a magazine imprint around her lips. Yeah. There's no other marks. That makes a lot of sense. No, that's great. That's great, actually. So I'm going to watch it with all this new stuff in mind now. That's why I love this stuff. Okay, next moment. Next moment. And again, you know, give me all the pushback you need. But <clears throat> this is another one I've been struggling with ever since I saw the film. When they decide that they have to have more oxygen tanks to get away in the shuttle, Parker and Lambert go down to the oxygen tank room and start making enough noise to wake the dead. And I'm saying to myself, what did y'all think was going to happen? <laughs> you go down there and you clang and I mean, and Ripley hears it all the way back in the control center. He's all the way back in another part of the ship and he hear all that clanging and whatnot. And then I'm like, and then Lambert looks up like she's surprised. I'm like, no, 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 no. Now, hold on just a blue-black minute. <laughs> okay. If it was a dog and you were making noise, you wouldn't be surprised if the dog wandered towards the noise. If it were any type of primate and you started making all that noise, you wouldn't be surprised that the primate, you know, wandered towards. Nothing living would surprise you that here come all this ruckus and at least it comes to see what, you know, what that is. But y'all are in a fight for your life against a seven-foot monster that you don't know anything about, you know, you got to get some oxygen 
and for some reason, you're loud and clumsy and surprised when the thing shows up. I, you, I haven't been able to figure that one out. Maybe y'all give me some insight. And then, now if you know anything about the backstory, the alien actually rapes Lambert. So the alien is cornering Lambert to kill her, and Parker, instead of using a flamethrower, charges. Once again, I'm saying, now wait, dog, now wait, wait, wait just a second. How come you, if, if the alien was in, in front of Lambert, how come you didn't use a flamethrower to just kind of push it back out the way? You could have moved it somewhere because that thing was afraid of fire. But instead, you charged it. And then that thing tore you in two. Okay, but then the last thing you see that Ripley hears is the tail coming down from the alien. That alien actually anally rapes Lambert and kills her, if you didn't know the backstory. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing was horrific. But I still didn't understand what in the world they thought was going to happen. Out there clanging around. Yeah, I, oh. So maybe y'all give me some insight. So go ahead, Nemesis, you first. Thoughts on that scene? Yeah, that final scene, well, first of all, once again, they've been smart up until this point, and then they split up again. It just so happens that the two people that split off get killed because neither one of them is the main protagonist. So, yeah, but it's like, that should be a movie rule. Wherever, if you're going somewhere, make sure you're going somebody with the main character. So there was that. Um the whole thing with Parker charging just made no sense to me. Uh, even hearing the part about her, I, I don't know, you know, it's just at some point, you know, if this thing has got her in, in its grasp, you gotta be like, yeah, I guess you're done. You know, it's like, you gotta do something, you know, it's like, you know, charge in there. I mean, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? So right. it, it seemed out of character. And then the last thing I'll say is that after watching this movie in Event Horizon, I don't think it's ever a good idea to go in pairs to go get the stuff for the, the oxygen system. Because the <laughs> same exact thing happened in Event Horizon. They sent the two people down there to go the, get the CO2 scrubbers, and they ended up dead. So it's like, you know what? Somebody, if you're in a horror movie and somebody tells you to go get the CO2 scrubbers, the oxygen, be like, hell no. Hell no. I'll go get the cat. You know? So... so. <laughs> Yeah, the one thing I will say in its favor is that at least this whole thing explains why the alien is not going after Ripley while she's trying to save the cat uh, and do the dem and do the demolition, uh, because the, basically it's being distracted by uh, Parker and Lambert. Okay, uh, that that part at least there is some justification for, but Lambert ends up uh, not 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 Lambert uh, Parker ends up going the way of a lot of those uh, horror characters who are like the next to last to being killed, where they suddenly forget all of these skills and all these the things that made them competent up to that point so that yeah. they can conveniently kill him. Uh, he, you, you see that? He's, he's Billy from Predator. Exactly. One of my favorite characters. That I, is exactly I, what I was going to say. Oh, that was my nickname. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was exactly my thought. And yeah, so you know, have these guys that are trained and they're skilled and they're competent and they suddenly conveniently forget all of these things that got them to the point where they're at. And then it's like, yeah, I'm just going to take the fall because the plot required it. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, he should have used the flamethrower. He should have done anything. 
Um, I will say that the, the business with Lambert and the implied tentacle porn was gruesome uh, and, and, and truly, truly, uh, you know, revolting uh, to watch. Like, even if, you, even if you don't necessarily see, like, the dirty, gory details, um, it's one of those things where they do well um, in horror, which is they imply the event in such a way that your imagination makes it worse than it actually looks on screen. I will give them credit for that. That was really, really well done. But yeah, uh, they were making all kinds of stupid noise, and, and like you, I was just like, oh my god, you're going to drive this thing right to you. What are you doing? And so yeah, they, they, they had basically all the stupid buttons uh, conveniently <laughs> to get rid of these two characters. And uh, while I don't mind in the case of Lambert, I think that uh, Parker deserved a better death than that. Well, not only that, if I remember correctly, uh, when that, that thing comes down, I mean, let's be honest, this is another reason to hate Lambert. Lambert got mm-hmm. Parker killed because Lambert's Absolutely. sitting there standing yeah. in front of the other. It's like, if I'm Parker, I'm coming in there and yeah. cold cocking Lambert just to get her on the ground and then blast yeah. that thing or something. So. Punching, punching her out just to drag her away would actually have been better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that, that's right. That's right. But also the, the brilliance of her death in terms of the horror frame is the fact that you hear it, but you don't see it. So yeah. like you said, your your mind goes all kinds of places with understanding what might be happening to her. And that is definitely uh, more gruesome, but it kicks up Ripley's desperation when she realizes, okay, well, I'm the last one left and I don't know how they died, but it sounded awful. So I don't want that happening to me. And then they do the thing, this is not the final moment I'm gonna talk about, but then they do the thing where the monsters everywhere. That's a movie rule of mine. It just amazes me. However far away Parker and Lambert were in the oxygen tank, room, chamber, whatever, somehow the alien covered that distance and knew exactly where Ripley was. Yeah. Because, you know, Ripley's doing whatever, and here comes a thing around the corner, all slow, all dramatic, and she's got the flickering disco lights going on. I'm like, wait. So did a tracker by smell? The tracker by smell, I'll give him that one. Maybe. But it's like, you know, the monster always knows the environment better than the humans, even if it's never been there before. So it found its way out of wherever that oxygen was to wherever Ripley was, enough to give her a dramatic peek around the corner. Like, you come around this corner, I'm going to eat you too. I'm like, oh, okay. But that's not the moment. Here's the last moment I want to talk about. The last moment I want to talk about is when Ripley blows it out of the airlock. I didn't quite understand, again, what she was doing because it's like, you know, she gets into the spacesuit and then the alien reveals itself by his hand coming out. And that was a great jump scare, great moment. But then it's like she turns her back to it while she's getting the harpoon ready and starts singing, you know, lucky star, you my lucky star, lucky, lucky, whatever. And then she looks over her shoulder and she's surprised that they didn't see the thing coming at her. I'm like, as opposed to what was going to happen next. And it's coming out really slow. Now, some articles I've read have said that the alien at that point was dying, that it had a short life cycle. I don't know if I agree with that or not, based on what we see in Aliens, but that's the way they explained it away in the first film. Because I'm like, that thing is faster than that. And now that thing knows that you know, and it came up out of its hiding space and how did it know to go to the shuttle? There it is, right there. Out of all the places on the ship, how did it know that's where you was going? And not only did it beat you there, it hid 
and it hid around perfect tubing so you couldn't see. I'm like, wait now, wait now. This is awful convenient, a lot of convenient stuff. So I'll, I'll definitely welcome your feedback on that. But then it's like she, she kind of turns around and she screams and she hits it with a harpoon. And I'm like, wasn't that the plan? You thought it was like, go get some French fries? And I, yeah, I, mm, I so I don't know. I'm looking at that whole thing. I'm like, okay, all right, that's dramatic, whatever. And that's the best body shot we get of the, the whole alien. But she pushes it out the thing. And I'm like, okay, all right. Well, I'm glad you won. I'm glad they didn't go with the original ending where you die and that thing bites your head off and takes your voice. I'm actually glad you won. But it was like, it was like Joker from Dark Knight level circumstances <laughs> had to happen <laughs> for you to end up winning. So give me your thoughts on that ending. Start with Nemesis. Yeah, I, I I have a lot of agreement here with you. Um, it's the one part of the movie that feels like it's got some serious, serious, serious amounts of plot convenience in it because it's like, like you said, exactly. It not only knew where she was going, it beat her there somehow. So it got past her, right. got in there, and then hit. So right. it's like, what 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 is going on now? Does they have teleporting abilities or something? So yeah, it is it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then the other thing, and and aliens, alien and aliens, and even um, yeah, those two movies in particular have a real bad habit of people or monsters being able to use their strength to hold themselves back against the vacuum of space. And it's like then there's that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. You know, and it's like and okay if you want to do the monster like eh, okay maybe but she's like barely, she's strapped in and she's not really being pulled forward or anything and then later on in aliens she's holding on and then pulls herself out of the and it's like no no way she's dead there so yeah um it, it's it's tough i mean i i love this movie but looking back on it it's like that's the this is the one part where you're like yeah, there's some holes here. You know, it's like the rest of it's been great, so I'll give you a pass. But if I'm going to call it like I see it, yeah, it's this is there's some problems here. So, the predator has a built-in camouflage cloak, and what he does is reflect refract, uh, refract light around him to appear invisible. But that works very well in a jungle context. The alien in this scene holes up in some tubes that look like it. So I'm like, what if those tubes have been white like plumbing pipes? What if they have been copper? What if they have been anything other than jet black and shiny like you? Then you stand out like a sore thumb. But so it knows where she's going. The beast are there that hides in perfect camouflage. And somehow she gets like right here. She does the cane thing. She right up on it. And then he comes in the hand, but it misses. Yeah, like you didn't you didn't grab nothing. She had no clothes on. She, you know, you could grab the hair or something. He came, and I'm like, so it was just like, oh, this is a scary moment. So it almost kind of breaks attention. Whatever. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I, I really have a problem with this. In fact, I in general have a problem with uh, final acts that are tacked on, <laughs> and this was one of them. Um, I had a problem with Man of Steel for the same reasons. Uh, the movie should have that movie should have ended with all of the Kryptonians being sent back to Krypton. We should never have had that fight with Zod at all. This is like that um, because uh, the the alien should have been destroyed on the ship, and the struggle should have gone its merry way, and that should have been the end of the movie. 
but no, we have to have a personal final confrontation uh, for drama's pr uh, purposes. So we can see this thing really is dead. And because of this, it's just not executed well. And yeah, it's just there's just too much plot contrivance. It's like, okay, yeah, why is this thing here uh, at a point as opposed to any other place on the ship? This thing doesn't know you're trying to blow the ship up. Why would it know, you know, to go to the shuttle? Uh, no, I, I'm not. I'm not on board with that. I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting the fact that she finds this thing sleeping basically, and then it's like, okay, that's scary. Uh, you know, what do I do about this now? Okay, that's fine. You know, wanting to blow it out the airlock, I guess, is fine. But, yeah, the execution is what really is the problem with this uh, whole part of the scene. Uh, and, it, and this is where it feels like attack on act, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because everything else is great. And I, you know, and I can even see, like, the value of the scene had it been done better. <laughs> but because it wasn't done better, it just stirs, uh, comes out more um, at, like a sore thumb in comparison to the rest of the movie, which is nearly pitch perfect. You know what? I'm, um, yeah. You know. You know what I'm curious about. I'm yeah. wondering if I'm smelling an executive who didn't like the dailies and what he saw and asked for a rewrite. I'm wondering if that's what I'm smelling. Ridley, Ridley Scott, I believe, has said that he added that himself. But I mean, he could have done it on the advice of an executive. I have no idea. Well, in Alien Three and Four, which we'll get to, we actually see the creatures die. In Alien and Aliens, we don't. Both times they're blown away from the ship, but we do not actually see them die. Yeah. So we don't know that thing is dead, it's just away from the ship. Because once Ripley uh, hits the jet engines, it's propelled away from by the engine thrust, but we just see it spinning. It's not disintegrated, so we don't know that it's dead. And the same thing with the Queen Alien in the next movie, which we'll talk about next week. But yeah, it was one of the few times where <clears throat> where I was like, just all this stuff is just awful convenient. And then, I don't know about you guys, when I see the final shot of Ripley in uh, hypersleep with Jonesy, something about that, and maybe that was on purpose, was very morbid to me. It was very eerie. It felt like, it felt like it still wasn't over, like there was some other thing that was going to happen. It didn't feel. It felt like it was the last shot, but it wasn't really the last shot. So I don't know if I'm explaining what I'm saying well, but it didn't feel like anything was tied up with a nice, neat little bow. It just felt like, you know, this is the last shot we're seeing of her. But I guess it was so ominous. I guess there were so many more things that could have happened after you're the only person on the ship, and then you go into hypersleep because there's no one around to wake up, you know, or before you or instead of you. Or just, I, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt very much like, like I don't know, like it was the, the upbeat and it was something else was going to fall and then the movie was just over. I was like, oh, wow, okay, okay. So hard not to, you know, think about what happens next, like we said. But, uh, but overall, 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 this is still one of the best films ever made, you know, in spite of our little nitpicks, you know, still highly recommended, still pivotal. It still created Alien and Aliens created all the tropes that you see now with films of their type. Mm -hmm. So whenever you have an insectoid type antagonist, they're gonna use a trope from Alien or Aliens, almost guaranteed. So yeah, in spite of all those moments, uh, I absolutely loved it. So the last thing to talk about and then we'll wrap up is uh, by film's end, 
what did you want to see more of? Because this is key. Now, for those of you that don't know, Ripley's part was originally supposed to be played by a man, and they switched at the last minute to how Sigourney and Ripley became a woman because they were reading something over in the script, and they said, well, let's flip the gender and make the character more interesting, and that's how Sigourney got on because Ripley was originally a man. But also, like we talked about before, like how would we have written the sequel? But here's, uh, again, my question to you now is, uh, where did your mind go? And again, we have to try to divorce ourselves from the sequels. Where did your mind go when you saw that last shot? Because I just told you where mine went. Mine went was like, there's got to be another jump scare in here somewhere. There's like, this can't be it. This doesn't feel like it's the real end. I thought the thing was going to come floating back and we'd see like the last shot would be a silhouette of the thing outside. Like it, it found its way back or something like that. But where did your mind go when you see Ripley, last surviving member of the Stromo signing off, Hypersleep, Herman Jonesy, credits. What'd you think about that, Star Wars Steve? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I think when I saw it the first time, um, I, you kind of knew that there was more coming, and you knew that you know Ripley was going to be back in the next movie, and you knew the aliens were going to be back in the next movie. So, you know, I think by then you were already kind of preconditioned to be spoiled uh, in that respect. But I always kind of felt like there were answer um, a lot of unanswered questions, like about Ash, about. Um, well and yutani and what their role role in this was and i don't even think aliens really addressed it that much um you know and and, and yeah there and it's because we really don't know exactly what happened to the alien i mean it looks like it's applied to be destroyed or at least you know killed or at least vacuumed uh, but you know it could have survived i mean we certainly uh haven't seen the last of that uh ship on the planet we certainly haven't seen the last of the planet there they were from um, what did the, you know, Whale and Yutani know and when did they know it? <laughs> uh, because, the, you know, they clearly knew about other uh, creatures like this. Um, now, I do have to wonder how much of that, you know, comes from Prometheus, uh, which I think is a different question, but I'll leave that for now. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I, I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's a movie that set itself up for sequels, um, you know, and they did eventually, you know, do that. Uh, but I think it's like, um, but it's a movie I think that generally holds on its own for what it is. You know, uh, they, you know, Ripley survives, Ripley gets out of there, you know, after uh, this horrific experience and, you know, you know, they go on their merry way. Uh, we don't know, you know, where they'll turn up. Uh, we find out later, um, you know, in the sequel and all that. But it's, it really feels as much a setup for new films <laughs> as much it is, as it is a story on its own. And, and you know, as a, a single unit of entertainment, it works. It's just that, you know, it leaves enough to make you want more. And I think that's probably why a sequel was uh, green <coughs> and then made. Leaves you enough to want more. Okay, that makes sense. Go ahead, Nemesis. Um, it's kind of hard for me to say exactly since I knew that another movie came afterwards. But <clears throat> watching it, I was really struck with the fact that she was going to be just want, you know, floating through space for God knows how long, you know? And so I was really struck by that. And the fact that where is this going to go when she eventually gets rescued, if she eventually gets rescued, what is she going to wake up to find, you know? So <clears throat> if I had seen alien first not aliens, I was thinking about that. I put all those movies on my mind. I probably would have been like, is she going to end up being rescued by a space station, kind of like Alien Isolation, or is she going to end up back at Earth 
and find out that she's been asleep for however many decades and they've been there and come back and there's like she's going to have to deal with them again because they're on earth or wherever you know mm -hmm. so that's kind of what i i think i would take from that because you're really setting her up to be that woman out of time and that's what she ends up being you know so because she's freezing herself and now she's just gonna float out there so so for those of you that uh want to get into <coughs> any more extended alien material there's a ton of stuff by dark horse you want to start with the dark horse novels but also you could start with uh uh, Stephen Stephanie Perry novels, which are my favorites. The first one they wrote was called Aliens Earth Hive. And it talks about what happens when those things finally get to Earth, because we never see that in the films. But that's a book you might want to go check out uh, just for our audience. Aliens Earth Hive, it's incredible. It gets deep. It talks about religious zealotry, worshiping men, people sacrificing themselves, the bio weapons angle the fact that they can't control them once they get here, very much like Jurassic Park, like we thought we could control something, but we can't. It's, it's really, really great. Uh, so definitely, if you can't get enough alien stuff, if you're an alien or aliens aficionado, that's where you want to go for more extended stuff. So yeah, all in all, I would say, in terms of our consensus, we give this movie two thumbs up. It's a brilliant film. It's a seminal film. It's a pivotal film. And besides, of, you know, our just little nitpicks or whatever, it's great. You can watch it multiple times. It qualifies as a horror film. We can't understand anyone uh, that tweet uh, that I talked about uh, saying otherwise. It hits all the tropes. It creates all the tropes. It, you know, so, so it's just really, really great. And um, it is so great, in fact that it, I agree with my co-host that Cameron had to go in a different direction so he just wouldn't be making a repeat or rehash because it's so unique. It's so much its own thing. It's such a, a clear and distinct film with its own voice and tone and everything until any attempt to remake it or reboot it or anything would just fail because it's a brilliant masterpiece. And so Cameron was right and wise to take it in another direction. And that's what we're gonna talk about on our next pod, because we're definitely gonna review Aliens, the sequel, my favorite movie of all time, bar none. And there's a lot of things around it as well, a lot of things around that movie. So I wanna thank my co-host for this excellent pod. Thank you so much, Nemesis. Oh, no problem. I love this franchise. The only thing I'll add is if you have not enjoyed these films, please watch them in order. You know, for someone like me, Watching the first aliens and and it's multiple aliens versus multiple humans. Um, going back to watch Alien, you kind of had to put that out of your mind because I don't know if it's a reflection of the aliens being nerfed or how much firepower Colonial Marines actually have. Mm -hmm. But seeing multiple humans against one alien, it, it can be a bit of a bit of a letdown if you don't watch them in order and then see it that way. So that's what I would recommend for sure. But you know, even with that. Great movies, absolutely enjoyable, just a classic and a staple in science fiction. Go get it. Science fiction and horror. So because you can have horror in space. <laughs> it is indeed a staple. Thank yeah. you so much, Steve. 
Yeah, um, this has really been a fun uh, movie to watch. And I, and I will say, um, you know, I didn't come into it. I didn't grow up with Alien or Aliens, but they have become uh, favorites, you know, as I've been experiencing them uh, in recent years. And, you know, the first two movies, I would say, you know, if you just watch those, you know, you're going to be pretty well set for life. Those are those are absolute classics. And it's and it's going to be really a lot of fun. And I look forward to talking about the Aliens as well, because there's a lot to unpack with that one. So until then, uh, this is Steve, uh, less survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. <laughs> Till Jonesy comes in and knifes you. So. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Until we get our third reveal that the cat was in it all yeah. along. Thank you so much for checking us out. Those of you that listen, are listening to us on the podcast, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the other pods we have on United Capes Podcast Network. Those of you that are watching the YouTube video, thanks for checking us out on the video. And check out all the other videos on the channel. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. Spoilers.